This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Simon's Crossing, co-authored by Charles William Asher and Dennis Patrick Slattery. And we have Charles Asher with us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Charles. Hey, Steve. How are you doing today? Well, this is such a fascinating story of... For many reasons, immediately everyone recognizes Simon of Cyrene because of his just his moment in time where he was plucked out of the crowd along the path to Calgary, Golgotha, and forced to carry Jesus' cross. So we know about him in the scriptures, but after that, we know nothing about him because nothing more is said. But you've taken it to that next step. You've used your creative license and said, what if, you know, what, what, what really happened to Simon? Tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to take that next step and tell us the rest of the story. All right. Well, it, it actually begins with a bit of a story before we tell Simon's story. And basically, my good friend and colleague, um, Dennis Slattery, who, by the way, is a terrific writer and poet, you know, published some 15 books, and some of the powerful imagery in this novel really comes from that poetic side of him. Well, Dennis um, was on a sabbatical. He's out in the desert. He was at a Carmelite monastery. He's Roman Catholic, and he was doing the Stations of the Cross. I guess he came to the fifth station of the cross out in the desert and sat down there and As he was sitting there, this thought kind of came to him where he kind of heard a voice saying, "Um, tell my story. And, you know, Dennis kind of, I'm sure, moved on to the next station. And then, you know, about three months later, I was sitting in my office. I was a provost of a graduate school where Pacifica Graduate Institute up in Santa Barbara, and Dennis called to make an appointment with me, and, you know, I'm used to working with 40 or 50 different faculty, and, of course, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, now, you know, probably here comes some contract negotiation or whatever, but Dennis comes in and kind of sheepishly sits down and says, you know, Charles, I was out in that desert, and about three months ago, looking at Simon of Cyrena's station, and I, like, heard this voice tell my story. Well, you know, I said, uh, oh, sure, Dennis. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, you know, you know how it is. Right. Maybe it's a gender thing with those guys. I had to give them a rough time a little bit. Like, right. yeah, did you have heat stroke, Dennis? Or, you know, were you chewing on something out in the desert there? Or So after we got, you know, past a little bit that, he said, no, you know, you know how it is, and you know, you know, I'm a poet, and you're a Jungian analyst and a priest, and an Episcopalian priest, and you know, sometimes there are thoughts that 
have us, you know, we don't so much have them. It's kind of like dreams, you know. We say, well, I had a dream last night, but sometimes it's more accurate to say the dream has me. Well, you know, I heard this, and after a while, after these three months have gone by, I thought, I've got to come and talk to you. I think we've got to tell the story about Simon, and I think you and I need to do this together. So um, are you willing to do that? Uh, <laughs> needless to say, this wasn't a contract negotiation, and I sat back in, in my chair. But in an instant, both seeing Dennis's reaction and my own, I said, count me in, Dennis. Let's do it. Let's figure out what needs to be told. And that started a, what, seven over seven-year project. <laughs> exactly. If you can believe that, it was... Um, back and forth, and we emailed each other to start with. We met, you know, a couple times during the week, and we talked it over a lot. I tell you, you got to be really good friends to end up editing each other's work back and forth and <laughs> yes. cutting out these things that he cut things out I loved and I cut things out that he loved, and <laughs> we're still best buddies. Yeah, that's true friendship there. It is, for sure. So when you... When you first started thinking, how are we going to tell the rest of the story about Simon, what were some of the first things you, I mean, how did you come up with the storyline? Well, let's, you know, start with the idea of, of the importance of the story. I mean, here, there is in the three Gospels, not in John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus carries his own cross, but in Mark, which is probably the most original source, Mark fifteen twenty one. There's just a very simple reference which says they compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrena, the father of Alexander and Rufus. So there's just this little obscure, you know, reference. But Dennis and I, you know, both had this, you know, strong feeling that all of us have our own particular stories that we're struggling with or dealing with. Um, and we needed to flesh out who this person might be. So we had a few, you know, facts, you know, to work with. But basically, we understood and realized that this, like any one of us, this person, Simon, is, is going to be a very complex person. We know he's got sons. We know he's then has had a you know, wife. Um, he's going to be living in a very particular country. He's coming in from the country. And we wanted to tell a full story about what might have happened to him when he was suddenly as just a passerby and a bystander yanked into this incredible story of the the journey to the crucifixion. So we really don't know if he's a believer or not. That's right. We know that he's he comes from a North African, you know, country. He's um coming in for the Passover as thousands of people would travel from different countries to the the synagogues, um, you know, in Jerusalem. And we can imagine that he, like any one of us, and I think this is what I know deeply gripped me, and I think, you know, without speaking too much for Dennis himself, that I 
know gripped him as well, is that it seems like every one of us, um, at some time in our life, or sometimes at many times in our lives, we're suddenly compelled to carry a burden, but not only our burden, but the burden of another person. And when that happens to us, or when it happens to someone that we're very you know, close to, there's all kinds of possible reactions. And uh, it may be that it comes from a sudden loss in our lives. It, it may you know, come because we're sick. Um, some disease is you know, suddenly upon us. We get a test result. We have trouble in relationships. We're dealing with gender issues or we're... There's a lot of things that all of a sudden we're compelled to carry. How do you react to that? I mean, what um, everyone's going to have a different reaction to suddenly experiencing their own, you know, suffering. And so we started to imagine, I mean, here's Simon, all of a sudden, and we know he's going to be carrying something in his life. Now, the novel talks about, you know, and in a sense makes a story and tells a story about what that is, and I think that's really interesting. It's pretty gnarly what happens to him. But then it's, how, do, how does he deal with that? Yeah, he you know, hates, does, he hates he, the yeah. Romans. We won't give away why, but he hates the Romans. Well, you know, Rome has got a huge grip on that, you know, time in history, and, and particularly hard on the Jewish, you know, people, and um, there, here are you know the Jewish people coming in with their purification laws to go to you know Passover and so forth, and and you know Rome, Pilate, the powers that be, want to keep things under control, want to keep things in place, and um, they don't want an unruly you know problem you know going on. You know Pilate's going around there looking for weapons of mass destruction. Instead, you know, here comes Jesus riding in on a, you know, on a donkey with some followers, but there's a great fear that, you know, he might be a political messiah. And so they, they're going to cramp down on him, and they clamp down on him, and they want to make sure that, you know, in the end he's killed and crucified and under, you know, Roman law, executed in that manner. They don't think he he might not make it you know, to the cross. He he might be so exhausted and, you know, so close to death from the brutality that he experienced that um, he might die before he gets there. So here, a, a Roman centurion, which had the right to do this, compels him to carry this cross, just picks this bystander Simon from Kyrena or Cyrena out of the crowd, hey, you've got to carry this cross. So this story, as you put it, it explores a lot of different themes, and these are very emotional from one end of the spectrum to another in intensity. I mean, you have violence, revenge, hatred, loss of purpose in life, resurrection, grace, forgiveness, love, passion, lust, redemption through the suffering of others, sacrifice. I mean, that is about every uh, possible of emotion, and it runs the gamut because of this incredible emotional experience. You said it perfectly there, Steve. That's exactly what goes on. And I know Dennis, both Dennis and myself, as you know, 
writing a novel, you, you do a lot of drafts on it, and I can tell you that each time that we went through this, it was deeply moving, you know, to us, I mean, as well. It just, because there are all those different experiences that that you see happen in this novel. And, you know, one of the, one of the challenges, Steve, about writing this, um, you know, on the one hand, you have a relatively obscure reference, you know, to, to Simon of Cyrena. But on the other hand, you've got this very familiar story that, um, you know, we're, here we are right now in the middle of Lent. Good time to read this novel. Um, and you've got with a passion play going on over in Germany where 500,000 people go to see this. And so there's a familiarity here. And, you know, a person's going to say, well, you know, pick up this novel, but haven't we told this story? But the question is, do do we ourselves personally really know this story? And how do you get to know that? And our sense is that sometimes, rather than having it just directly said in a rational way in your face, that by telling the story where you can identify and understand an ordinary person who suffered, and you go along with that, you, you submit yourself to that story, just like we try to submit ourselves to that voice. You get into that from the inside, and I think the readers would be surprised to see that it's a, a unique way in which Simon goes through his own change and transformation. And so... In the end, it's not like we're going to just imitate Simon because it's going to raise the question, well, how do I deal with my burden? And if I have a story about my burden, how do I place that within the context of a larger story? And in this case, the story of the crucifixion. And if I'm able to place that in, within that larger story, can that be a source of healing? Can that be a way that we begin to glimpse some other ways to, within which we can carry our, our own suffering? As you say uh, in a written statement, this kind of sums up what you've been talking about. You know, it's the story of the wounded, afflicted human spirit. And then, of course, also the ability to absorb and even transcend that those experiences in our life, which at the moment we're going through them, seems like they're just going to kill us. Absolutely, that, um, that that's absolutely true. How, now, how does that transcendence takes place? I we mean, have about you... uh, we have about two minutes left, uh, totally. <laughs> okay, boy, time does go by yeah, quickly. It does. Yeah, well, I think that's part of what um, a person who reads this would explore, you know, that they would, by identifying with the characters and seeing the different reactions that the characters have to the crucifixion, a, a kind of community is formed around Simon, and it's an unusual twist at the end as to how change takes place. You know, I hope that it might filter down, and Dennis and I, of course, would love to hear from, you know, people in terms of their reactions, their thoughts, because, you know, we continue to have our own 
struggles that we go along with that we all have as you know human beings and we're in it together and hopefully Simon you know sheds a little light on this Simon's crossing well it sounds we like an award cross to a different place it sounds like an award winning movie you know an Oscar night movie it sounds that kind <laughs> of, a, of a theme and well, a plot. That, that would be pretty nice you know I think <laughs> I think a, a more modest thing would be that right now during Lent, you know, a person right. in a church picks up uh, 10 copies of that and gets a group together and they reflect on this and think about it and see how it relates to their lives. Well, Charles, how do we get your book? Well, um, there's a couple of ways. I mean, iUniverse, of course, so you go directly to iUniverse.com. It's on Amazon.com. Um, I myself have a website, which would just be drdrcharlesasher.com. I could make sure that, you know, I can at least direct a person towards those to get those books. And, um, you know, I think it's, um, I've uh, already had, you know, quite a few responses, you know, t- you know, to the book. And it seems to stimulate conversation and thought and, and people you know, come to uh, a little different place in their lives having gone through it, at least the people that have responded. So, gosh, we're hopeful that can be helpful to people. Well, thank you, Charles, for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's, it's a great pleasure, Steve, to talk with you and have this conversation. Thank you so much. That was Charles Asher. He is a co-author, along with Dennis Slattery, of Simon's Crossing, a novel. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back 
to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Adam 3XL, and the author is Dr. Martin Nolka. And Dr. Nolka joins us now on this special interview for iUniverse Radio, brought to you by Trafford Publishing. Hello, Dr. Nolka. Hello, good evening. Good to have you with us. How did you come to write this book? What was your motivation, Dr. Nolka? For more than 20 years, I've been interested in preventive medicine. After developing a viable concept for long-term weight reduction, I began a long phase of lecturing. The topic was nearly always nutrition and diseases of civilization. In modern-day America, children will no longer attain the age of their parents despite the enormous advances in modern medicine. This bleak development has been caused by the epidemic-like occurrence of overweight, new type of diabetes, and large-scale bad eating habits accompanied by too little exercise. Dr. Noka, how should we deal with this overwhelming problem? The communication of scientific facts is apparently not very helpful in reconciling overweight people with their figures. But if you tell them a story in which they can see themselves, where they can identify with a hero and share in his dreams, a story that leads to a happy ending, then you can reach them in their heart of hearts. Then they want to change, and I think then they will change. And so I've written... Adam 3XL, a novel of a basketball player who becomes overweight and ill. With the help of an old doctor and some simple rules, he succeeded in regaining his health, reaching his goal, and fulfilling his dreams. I wrote this book because I reach, can reach much more people with this story than it would be possible for me with consultations during my lifetime. But I also wrote it because I still firmly believe that books can improve our lives. I trust in an old-fashioned educational ideal based on the deep faith that human beings in any kind of plight still have the power to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps if they just pick up the right book. Who does the book appeal to and, and why? I'm a medical doctor on the countryside. As a doctor, I have to help my patients and must try to heal them even in seemingly hopeless situations. The novel addresses young people or anyone with a weight problem who has acquired an unhealthy lifestyle. Adam 3XL is my literary answer to obesity and civilization. Doctor, what one thing do you want readers to learn and take away from this work? Obesity is not an inevitable fate. The readers acquire simple knowledge, just eight rules that enable them to regain their health and fitness while shedding excessive pounds. Tell me how this book is unlike others with similar topic. What sets it apart from the crowd? The book market is overwhelmed with self-help books on this topic. Diet, counting calories, or scientific facts are obviously not very useful to restrain the epidemic increase of obesity. It's much more useful to tell a story because dry book knowledge comes alive through stories. Stories create an orientation and motivation. Successful stories are ones that have a clear hero that people like to tell to others and that have an especially large benefit for the readers. When and where does your story take place, Doctor? Adam 3XL is absolutely timeless. My intention was to avoid everything that indicates to a certain time or period. This story can place at any time and everywhere in America. It's not just about diet and exercise, but also involves basketball, love, and friendship. 
What three words best describe this story and its characters? To describe a book with three words may be possible for non-fiction books such, such as scientific books. A few more words are necessary for Adam Sweeks. Uh, I already mentioned basketball, love, friendship. Weight loss, diet, and exercise. The characters can be described like this. Adam, a former high school basketball player who battles overweight, depression, and disease as he seeks love and success in his life. Sam, an affectionate father who introduces his son to reading and basketball at an early age. His first love, Sarah. Adam wins the affection of this beautiful woman despite being extremely overweight. His best friend, Joseph, is a male nurse and basketball fan who shows what it means to be a true friend. Dr. Grant is an older physician with a very wise humanitarian holistic approach to health and medicine. What was the most challenging part about writing this book, and, and what was the most fun and rewarding part of writing this book? <laughs> yeah. The most challenging part was, was the beginning and an endless fear of so many empty sheets of paper. The most fun was to finish it and to write the epilogue that shows how Adam fulfills his... And Dr. Nolka, is there anything we haven't covered here that you feel is important for people to know about your book? Yes. After reading Adam Sweet's L, readers will be inspired to successfully overcome their own obesity. The road to recovery may be long and steep, but they will become heroes in their efforts to fulfill their own dreams. Do you have a website for more information? Yes, for more information, you can see at adams3xl.com. And would you please read an excerpt of your book? Yes, uh, there's a nice scene. Um, Adam meets Sarah again in the bookstore. Adam, uh, she has some questions and a problem, and Adam says, I'd be pleased to invite you for a cup of coffee. There's a very nice cafe nearby. We can sit in the sun and have a quiet conversation there. They slowly walk down the street to a small cafe. He asked where she wanted to sit, pulled out a chair for her, and waited until she was seated. Then he asked what she would like and ordered two cups of coffee and a glass of water. From his many books, Adam knew how much women value a man who can listen to them. He also knew that it was much more important to many men to engage in verbosity than to really get to know their counterparts. Above all, every little flirt is certain to have a sudden end because of one thing, the man's incessant flow of words. Adam would not even have known with what he could distinguish himself. Self-confidence had been already non-existent for some time now. Wasn't it a gift to even be allowed to drink a cup of coffee with such a beautiful and nice woman? And so he remained silent, tried to make eye contact and smiled. He did everything right at this moment. His expression signaled that he was listening to her some time later. At some point, she also asked him to tell her something about his life. Adam passed for a moment. The most recent past was not suitable for discussion. So he told her about his valley, his wonderful father, and the time at high school. He formulated his dreams for the future in somewhat vague terms, such as studying literature or a similar subject at the college. He did not mention a word about the round piece of sport equipment that he had been able to handle so well in the past. She certainly would not have believed him and would have laughed as she got up to leave. Instead, he provided a witty commentary about how the street basketball players playing on the opposite side of the road were proving their scooting skills in someone's yard. Suddenly, the ball rebounded, 
fell into the street and rolled towards the stable. With a speed that astounded her, Adam stood up, stopped the ball with his foot, lifted it very elegantly with a tip of his toe, and began to dribble in place. Hey, chump, give the ball back, yelled one of the boys. Adam did not let that put him off. Using an old trick, he let the ball rotate on his index finger. Hey, Fetzo, we aren't in the circus here. Give the ball back. Adam looked at Sarah and began to laugh. Did he really say Fetzo? With a perfect baseball pass, he sent the ball on its way. After more than 30 yards, the ball hit against the board and just barely missed the rim. The boys on the other side clapped in appreciation and Adam sat down. Sorry, Sarah. At least that was better than a brick. After all, beautiful woman disrupts the concentration. Sarah had followed the entire scene in display. That was really fantastic. The ball almost made it in. You don't just throw a pass like this by accident. Don't you want to explain anything else? Adam played the innocent little angel. He acted very embarrassed. But that was just luck, the good luck of a jump. Her unerring instinct told her that this wasn't even half of the truth. So she said in a amused tone, you don't really have the talent to be an actor, so you would have been better off as a basketball player. Unfortunately, life doesn't happen in the subjunctive. What could have been, what would have been if Adam looked up pensively? For Sarah, this specimen of 3XL had become increasingly interesting. She carefully wrapped up the book and smiled. What a beautiful gift. I'll tell you what I've learned in two weeks. I hope that we'll see each other again here. Yes. I hope you enjoy reading Adam 3XL. Just eight simple rules for fighting obesity. Yes. Dr. Noko, thank you for being on this special interview for iUniverse Radio, brought to you by Trafford Publishing. Yes, and I will repeat, I hope that we will see each other again, uh, maybe in America, in some weeks or months. Okay? That would be wonderful. Thank you. Best for you. Goodbye. That was Dr. Martin Nolka. He is the author of his book, Adam 3XL. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. 
Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Alcibiades, Fact, Fiction, Farce. And the author is Jack Meyer, and Jack joins us on this special interview for iUniverse, brought to you by Trafford Publishing. Hello, Jack. Hello. Good to have you with us to talk about Greek history, but at the same time you believe is tied to American foreign policy today. Correct. The purpose is to uh, do a critique of American foreign policy from the point of view of this ancient war between Athens and Sparta called the Peloponnesian War, because there's similarities that are absolutely astounding. And Athens was the superpower of its day, and it was defeated. And we're the superpower of today, and there's lessons to be learned. So take us back to what date, and what date are we talking about with this war between Sparta and Athens? Well, it occurred between 431 B.C. and 404. It was 27 years, and uh, that's a long time for those days. And the problem, the reason it took so long is there was an inherent asymmetry to the battle. In other words, Sparta was a, a land power, a land army. Athens is a naval power. So how do you fight uh, a navy versus an army? Because neither was going to fight on the strength of the other. And today we have a tremendous asymmetry at work in these wars throughout the world. So tell us about Alcibiades. Tell us about his character. Now, th- is this character fiction? I uh, know he's a real person, uh, perhaps uh, the most interesting person in the history of the world. He, was, uh, he was, uh, grew up in the household of Pericles, the greatest Greek of them all, the builder of the Parthenon. He was Socrates' favorite student. He was incredibly handsome. And that's part of the pro- uh, his problem is, like today's rock stars, everybody wanted to be by him. He was r- rich through marriage. He was a brilliant tactical commander. And uh, he-, he was a-, a winning general in this war. The only trouble is he switched sides three times, so he turned out to be a complete scoundrel. So why was but, he morally corrupt? Uh, I think just opportunity, uh, because he was so handsome and so privileged, People just wanted to be with him, and they, whatever he said, they, they wanted to agree with it. They wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. And, it, and it, being a commander in this war, he came up with things that were, in hindsight, preposterous, but people went along with it. And those things were the single reasons why Athens lost. So I tried to do a little bit of a psychology of Alcibiades without going too much into that. But uh, he, he was just a, a privileged individual that could only do bad. So as you look at the world today and you look at American foreign policy, what do you see similar to what happened back with this Sparta-Athens war? Well, 50 years prior to the situation I'm talking about, the Spartans and the Athenians teamed up and defeated the Persians. So that's 50 years prior. In the meantime, Athens developed an empire and Sparta developed a much smaller empire. But as Athens grew bigger and bigger, it became more and more... It started as a defense alliance where there was kind of a a mutual democratic principle. But as it grew and Athens became stronger, they became a bully. And they they created enemies simply because they kept pushing and pushing and dictating to people 
And uh, the, the result was that those people began to push back. And um, so one of the things that I'm going to try to talk about is, with respect to America is are we pushing a little too hard? We want it our way all the time. And that we create enemies where there really are none simply because we're telling people what to do. Yeah, we're going to force democracy on the world, right? Right. And, and you know, that same terminology is used in uh, the Peloponnesian War. It's, uh, you're going to do what we tell you because we're a democracy. And it, the, the contradictions and the hypocrisy loom very large. The other thing that's important is one of the central, another, another player in my book is uh, Socrates, and uh, Alcibiades is his favorite student. And um, one of the principles with him is minding one's own business. And, you know, that sounds like just a sort of everyday sort of principle, but there's a profundity there. And uh, Athens no longer was minding its own business. It was minding everybody else's. And, of course, that leads to disaster. Of course, our founding fathers talked about staying out of foreign entanglements. So that's kind of what he was saying. Right. And, uh, you know, this comes after the Second World War. You know, we, we, we popped on the scene as the dominant power. And let's say it's a, like a, a 50 years later. And uh, we're, we're, we're way, we've outgrown that original situation, and we're, we're in, um, you know, 110 countries. We've got troops all over the world. We, we're dictating through Washington. And um, I, I'm not saying that it's all negative, but I think we have to reconsider that position because the single greatest problem in the world today or a situation is the status of the American military. Do we want to continue to pro push, and that's the assumption of the foreign policy structure in this country, we just, they don't even think about that. Because it's an assumption, they just keep pushing and pushing. And it's not like I'm a 100% critic. It's just that it's time to reconsider on a fundamental level. And maybe we can create friends just by backing off just a bit. Well, another thing I know the Founding Fathers always talked about is be the light on the hill. Be the shining example. Don't force what we have, but be the example. Well, you know, in many respects we are, but we don't have a, our self-image is a little twisted. We have a, you know, we call ourselves the greatest democracy, the greatest country in the world, and that's, that, that's true, certainly, certainly in some respects. But we fail to understand how other people perceive us, because they might not perceive us exactly as we perceive ourselves, and that causes a dissonance and a misunderstanding that goes to the heart of our problems today. You say that there's a level of clear thinking about the world that is above the noise of partisan political ideology, and it's possible to learn from the past if one so chooses. So that seems to be one of the reasons you've written this book. Correct. And uh, my spokesman for that is Socrates, and uh, he just takes all these issues and backs them down and says, what's a rational, uh, what's a thoughtful approach to them, not an emotional, agitated, before the assembly sort of rant, but what is minding one's own business? What is arrogance? What is being a bully? And, and he, he has a discussion that's not, am I right and you wrong? It's just, let's just discuss these issues in a straightforward manner. And just the tone, a rational tone does wonders to a conversation. If you listen to the TV today, there is no rational tone anywhere. It's all partisan 
bickering, and that's part of the problem because you can't de define terms that way, and people just assume, and fundamentally, no one's listening. If, if there's an aggressive tone, there's nobody listening. The Socratic element in this book is a, an attempt to get that tone where things are understood. So does Alcibiades have some kind of antagonist? Um, well, uh, it, it, it's really the, the conflict between uh, Alcibiades and Socrates. And, and, to the, and Socrates always uh, was, was concerned about Alcibiades. He knew he was a, he was a troublemaker, but he was... He, he, he was committed to trying to make him do better. In fact, uh, when you went into the army in those days, you were assigned an older man as a campmate so he could teach you how to be a soldier. Well, Alcibiades' campmate is uh, Socrates. So from a very long standing, they are friends. In fact, while they were in the army together, they each saved each other's life in, different, in two different battles. So they had this profound uh, um, relationship. It's just that... Socrates, let's say, represents uh, straining towards rational understanding and the good, and um, Alcibiades was the opposite, for whatever reasons. So, so throughout the book, with this fictional, historical look back on the, this Athens-Sparta war, how do you make the jump to, the, to this modern day? Do you just take us uh, through questions, or how do you get us to think about what's going on today. Well, I try to set up comparisons. Uh, like I mentioned, Athens was a superpower and was defeated. The asymmetry was profound. We have a, you know, we can send all the cruise miss missiles into Afghanistan we want, but it's the IED, the roadside bomb, that's going to be the issue. Our military is not structured to, uh, for this asymmetry. And, um, and also, one of our problems is we... They, just like the Athenians, they assumed that defeat was inconceivable, in which case they would do things that clearly contributed to their ultimate defeat, but because they assumed that they weren't going to be defeated, they would indulge in them. And we, we too, have this assumption that we are, it's inconceivable that we be defeated, and that creates a situation where we do things that are, will turn out very bad. Well, do you do you take do you take us to Afghanistan, Iraq? Do you take us and make those kinds of comparisons? Well, I, I, I'm certainly leaning in that direction. I don't call them out by name because I think our problem is deeper. It's not just getting out of Iraq and Afghanistan. It's pulling back our entire uh, military structure from the world. And uh, perhaps a quick example is Okinawa. We got troops in Okinawa. Do we really need those troops in Okinawa? We got uh, troops in. Uh, Colombia were ripping up the countryside uh, in the drug war. Uh, the drug war, I mean, the drug situation is, is, a, is the United States problem, and yet we assume we can go into these countries and do whatever we want. So and another thing is, um, you know, Bin Laden stated why uh, he attacked the towers, and one of the reasons was got 20,000 troops in uh, Saudi Arabia, sacred territory to that religion. And uh, do we need 20,000 troops in um, Saudi Arabia? You know, and, and I'm not saying yes or no, but let's reconsider those in a fundamental way. Our projection outward is just so vast that I, I think we've lost control of it. I, I don't know if there's anybody in government that really comprehends our, our forward position throughout the world. Why did you bring the trial of Socrates into your story? Well, it, 
um, it, it's of course the conclusion of the Peloponnesian War. After the war, they were looking for scapegoats, just like we'll be looking for scapegoats. And um, Socrates was a handy guy because, well, they said the, the reason we get we were defeated was because we got bad advice from our generals. Our worst general was Alcibiades. How did he convince us to do all these terrible things that led to our defeat? And it was because Socrates was his teacher. And um, they they just went off after perhaps the most innocent guy because, in a sense. They were all guilty. They all went went for it. It's kind of well. It, it, everybody wanted to do these things because it was popular at the time. And Socrates um, uh, comes right at that point, and the, they execute him. And in his defense, in the, the trial, I try to lay out in systematic form that rational discussion, which allows one to know thyself better. And that's the condition for all of this. We as individuals must do better. And I, I use him as my spokesman. We've got, uh, oh, about a minute and a half left. Jack, uh, what are some concluding thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners? Well, I think uh, we as a nation have to rethink um, our whole status in the world. And uh, we, we just can't continue with wars and rumors of war. The economic system, global system, cannot settle when there's wars everywhere. We have to make peace with somebody at some point, and this is a discussion that allows you to think about those issues, the profound issues facing you, your kids, your grandkids, great-grandkids, and it allows you to think about it in a different way, in a, in a personal way, in a self-reflective way that has consequences for the the, the totality, let's say, of America and who we are as a country. Do you have a website, Jack? No, I don't. But I do have, um, let's see, uh, an email address if anybody wants to. Okay. It's alcibiades399 at gmail.com. Well, 399 is the date that they executed Socrates, a critical date in history. You're also the author of The Odyssey of the Western Spirit, From Scarcity to Abundance. Well, that's my lifelong project. I published that a couple years ago. It's a, uh, what I think is a comprehensive history of the Western world. It, it shows why the West won, what it is about the West that was distinctive, how liberal democracy entered the world, how the Industrial Revolution, as a result of that, uh, has accomplished a material abundance, and how out of material abundance we might have a spiritual abundance. But we've got to choose better than we have been choosing. And, of course, we can get this book from Trafford Publishing? Trafford.com. Uh, it's available at Amazon. And all online retail outlets, I'm sure. Yeah, just go to your local bookstore and um, just order ask it for them. It. Right. They can bring it in. They can order it in. Yep. Well, thank you, Jack. We appreciate you being on this special interview for iUniverse Radio. You're very welcome. That was Jack Meyer. He is the author of his book, Alcibiades, Fact, Fiction, Farce, on this special edition of iUniverse Radio, brought to you by Trafford Publishing. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.